This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Benjamin Vogt is a writer, gardener, and educator living in Nebraska. On his website, monarchguard.com, he writes that, As a child, being in the home landscape with my mother planted a seed in me. It was the overall urban, suburban wildness of my Minnesota youth that made a deep, lasting impression. Small woodlands filled with vocal wildlife, ponds and lakes dotting every bend in the road, and the distinct, evocative seasons rich in their personalities. As I've grown older, he goes on, my earliest years living in Oklahoma have come to the surface. The vast openness, the wind, the mixed grass prairie, all have just as deeply colored my emotional and physical aesthetics. I'm honored to live in a diverse state like Nebraska, where prairies meet forest and mountain, and where millions of migrating birds give new resonance to the definition of flyover country. In his new book, A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defiant Compassion for an Uncertain Future, out now from New Society Publishers, he argues from a heartfelt position that our gardens are protests for all the ways in which we deny our own life by denying other lives. Benjamin joins us today via Skype from his home in Nebraska. Welcome, Benjamin. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure to be here with you. So I want to start with you describing to us, Benjamin, your current gardened space around your home there in Nebraska. You know, I live I live on about a quarter acre lot, so that's 10,000 square feet or so. And um, we lived here about 10 years and I slowly chipped away at the last bits of lawn and I think I've got about 4,500 or 5,000 square feet of lawn. Um, If I could take out the driveway, I'd put in some garden there too. Um, So we have the oldest part of the garden um, is about 1,000 square feet and it's very thick and lush and has really tall plants. And then the newest part of the garden is 2,000 square feet uh, out back and that's just sort of a mini suburban meadow. And then out front is sort of something in between the two gardens that are out back. It's a it's a designed garden meadow on just 600 square feet that hopefully um, uh, is attractive to both neighbors and wildlife. Um, it's definitely attractive to the butterflies, but I don't know about the neighbors. And you've been on that ground for 10 years, I think you've said. Describe where you are in Nebraska, and then walk us through your journey getting there. I am in eastern Nebraska. I'm in the capital city of Lincoln, so we're pretty much on the right one-third side of Nebraska where the tall grass prairie used to be, so we tend to get a little bit more moisture than the central part of Nebraska where the sandhill prairies are, and then the western part where it starts to get rocky and very dry and a lot more arid. Um, God, how did I end up in Nebraska? I'm still asking myself that question to this day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the best answer is just to say I came out here for a Ph.D. in 2003, a Ph.D. in English literature and creative writing after doing my master's at Ohio State. And I thought I would live out here for just four years, but um, ended up staying out here. My, my girlfriend followed me out here and 
and got into the English program as well. And she went on to the PhD and we went on to get married and, and we're still here, which, which isn't a bad thing. I make that sound bad, but you know, this Nebraska is such an ecologically diverse state. I never, mm-hmm. never realized that 10, 10 years ago, 14 years ago. And uh, it's just really a lot of cool things going on environmentally here. Now, where did you grow up, Benjamin? That's also a tricky answer. Uh, first 10 years in Oklahoma, so western western part of Oklahoma, about 30, 40 minutes from the Texas panhandle, mm-hmm. so it was warm and dry. And then the next eight years up in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, mm-hmm. so very, very different uh weather, very different climates and, and totally different populations. I was in a town of 7,000 and I went to, you know, Minneapolis, which at the time was, you know, 2 million or something. Mm-hmm. And describe your earliest experiences with, with nature and when you became a gardener, Benjamin. Some of the... Some of the memories that stick out the most um, from my childhood are, are first in Oklahoma, where I, I grew up playing with um, Texas horned lizards. Mm. We called them we called them horny toads, and some people still call them that. But it, it's a species that is slowly vanishing from its range. Mm. Um, I remember putting them into the little beach buckets and throwing some grass and sticks in there, and just having a good time petting their thorny backs and heads. And then up in Minnesota. It was it was very much just wandering woodlands uh, around our home, um, around the various homes I lived in, and and spending time on the lakes. There's such a such a big outdoor culture in Minnesota all year round, especially centered on on lakes. So you know, uh, fishing and boating and and being on the beach. Though the beach in Minnesota is certainly different than a beach in California. Uh, so <laughs> and then yeah, and then gardening. My mom, my mom forced us to go outside on the weekends and, and, and clean up trimmings from shrubs and, and, and trees and stuff. And and then maybe 50% forced me to go to the nursery. And then the other 50%, I sort of wanted to go with her just to hang out with her and get out of the house and be surrounded by all that lushness, which slowly over time became more and more attractive to me. Hmm. Though I did not become a gardener until I was oh, about 30 or so and moved into my first home and just went nuts. <laughs> yeah. And was that the home there in Nebraska or was it an yes. earlier? Yeah. 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 This, yes, this is the one. Um, I, I, I did, I did live in a, in a town home for four years before living in this house. And my mom helped me set up about a, Oh, I don't know, maybe a small 50, 60 square foot garden out front. And that sort of wetted my whistle. But I knew once we moved to this, this larger home, um, my wife and I, that I was going to have a garden. And after we spread 20 yards of mulch, we started to realize how crazy big that was going to be. Tell us a little bit about your climate there and a little bit about the you mention the what used to be tall grass prairie history of the location, um, and I I think from reading your your various blogs over time and from the book that you have a you have developed a deep love and appreciation for what that ecosystem is and what it once was. Um, so describe a little bit about your climate and about that that ecosystem or larger 
eco-region that you find yourself making home? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, out here in eastern Nebraska, it's it's windy a lot of the time, but I'm used to that living on the plains. I'm very much a plains boy now. Uh, and I'm, I realize that Nebraska, I am living exactly in between geographically speaking where I was born in Oklahoma and where my formative years growing up were in Minnesota. So kind of cool and symbolic to me, but, um, yeah, so it can be minus 20, minus 30 in the winter mm-hmm. and it can be 105, 110 in the summer. And that's a very muggy, Usually when it's that hot, it's very muggy, dew points in the 70s. So wonderful extremes. And I love those 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 extremes. I love having four distinct seasons, which are so separate from one another, one another and offer so much beauty and opportunity um, to, to, to know the landscape in intimate ways and in different intimate ways than, than somebody who might live. Oh, I don't want to bash anybody, but I don't <laughs> think I could live in Florida all year long. I just... You know, it's got to be colder than 40 for me in the winter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the tall grass prairie. So, yeah, this used to be tall grass. We only have a few tall grass remnants left. I mean, the tall grass prairie is is is, is about the most eroded um, ecosystem we have on the planet. There's mm-hmm. just that little left, 1% or so. We have a few remnants here in eastern Nebraska that are a couple hundred acres each. Um, there are some private landowners who, if they're lucky, might have 10 acres uh, on their land. Um, and you know this 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 tall grass is just it, it is essential um, to the environment. It can actually clean the air at similar rates as Amazon rainforest. Yeah. Um, so it's just amazing, and I, I miss it. And I know it can come back. And I know it's important because the wildlife that use it and need it are still here, mm-hmm. even though we tend not to think about that. Mm-hmm. And that so that really gets us to the book. So the book, a new garden ethic, cultivating defiant compassion for an uncertain future. Tell tell me about the journey that led you to writing this book, because it's been a good long time. You, you, were, you have been blogging and writing and advocating and teaching for many years now um, and having this ongoing conversation with a larger audience that has sort of evolved and aggregated into this book. Talk about that that journey, Benjamin. You know, to be to be brutally honest, that journey started with frustration, mm-hmm. sadness, anger, and I know for a lot of people these emotions are, are negative and something to run away from, but for me they they have been fuel and, and necessary fuel to understanding the world around me and, and and just reaching out to a deeper level into the landscape around me and, and even into the gardens around my home. Um, I think it was, gosh, what was it? Uh, summer of 2012 or 2013, I did a blog post and I don't know where it came from. I mean, this is, this is how writers work. Or this is how I work anyway. I just sit down and all of a sudden something vomits out of me. And it, it, it was just, it was full of passion. It was full of a passion I swear to deny myself now because I probably was full of swear words and condemnations and <laughs> things like that. But, uh, uh, there's actually an editor uh, at a press who left a comment or emailed me privately or something and said, wow, that's, that's just, that's just incredible, incredible. You know, give me more, talk more about that. I just, I can't believe you wrote that. And so, and so I think that led that fall to a blog post on garden rant, which I don't know. I, I don't want to say it created a firestorm, but it definitely created a heated debate because when we start talking about gardens, 
we start talking about very private emotions and private experiences. It's like it's like you're going into somebody's home and saying, why do you have that painting on that wall? Or why are you eating that food for dinner? Um, which I would never do, right? <laughs> um, so, so. so tell us about the seeds at the heart of that first blog post. And what was your blog called at that time, Benjamin? Well, it's called the Deep Middle, mm-hmm. and um, I, it, it's still up, even though I, I've transferred my more frequent writing to my main website, monarchgardens.com. Right. It was about what I what I now understand as human supremacism, um, this idea that we put ourselves first in the landscapes around us, and it's not necessarily just our gardens; it's 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 everywhere. Um, that we see the world first and almost exclusively through our eyes, our experiences, and our emotions. And that's totally natural and expected, especially for a species that has as many creative, mental, physical faculties uh, as we have. But that that doesn't that, that excludes basically the real living world. I mean, we, we, we can't just say there's one species that has one one set of concerns on this world. Otherwise, we're not going to be around that much longer. So how do you look at a garden as not just a pretty canvas for you to paint in, but as a space for you to do something worthwhile for 99% of the living world for this species we do very much depend upon? Mm. How do we look at plants we put in our gardens as um, as not as, as pretty for everything around us. Um, what what does a specific wasp species find pretty? What do monarch butterflies find pretty? What do native bees find pretty? And and in that, I think we can find a deeper level of beauty that isn't just the cover of a book. Mm-hmm. And when you were writing that, who were you writing it to? Oh, that's a good question. I think I think at the time, I, I I was not writing to everyday gardeners. I was I was writing to the people who are the most intimate with horticulture, you know, the the business people, the nursery owners, the landscape designers, mm-hmm. um, the people who would challenge me the most, and I would challenge the most in the years after that blog post and, and as they still do, which is a great, wonderful thing. Mm. Of course, also the people I pissed off. <laughs> what I find both lovely and complicated and compelling about why I asked that question, Benjamin, is that I find myself in reading your book, in reading your blog, in in catching um, momentary whiffs of both the anger and the frustration and the love and the appreciation and this whole complexity of what you are experiencing when you write about it, there is something so poignant and beautiful about the way you are expressing this as though you are both talking to yourself, to your younger self, to your neighbor, to all the gardeners I know and to all of the people who are not gardeners, but I wish would be gardeners. There is this sort of parable. It, it kept reminding me a little bit of that parable of which wolf you feed, the, the wolf of scarcity or the wolf of abundance, and whichever one you feed is going to be the one that thrives. And you see in gardens this incredibly disturbing hypocrisy 
And at the same time, you see in gardens this most beautiful possibility. And they're, they're sort of battling it out in the way you talk uh, to us and for us and for yourself through the course of this book. I should have had you write the back cover to my book. That was, <laughs> well, next that time, was Benjamin. Um, because it's true. It, it, you, you, you will on one hand say, you know, gardens are arrogant and gardens are futile and gardens are, you know, these superficial aesthetic decorations. And then in the next hand, you will say, these are our bridges to hope and the future and other species and the, all of those languages we've lost. Yeah. And, you know, that complex, that, that complex conversation, I think, is one that is, it's really hard to have. It's really hard for a lot of people to have. It's certainly hard for me to have. It's, it's hard to wrap our minds around. And I think, I think sometimes, um, because it's so hard, it can feel like it's it's confronting things about ourselves that make us feel uncomfortable, and that perhaps we know we need to address and that we need to change, but that we can get very self we can get very defensive mm-hmm. about. But but we we need to we need to understand yes there is a duality in the garden and it is it is trouble and it needs to be trouble because it represents the larger issues we're facing facing as a species. Yeah yeah. So I want to walk through the book a little bit so that you can describe to listeners how you have structured it and the different big topics. If you were to start that off, Benjamin, with summarizing your thesis in this book. I can do it a different way every day. So today's version shall be, um, in a time of mass extinction and climate change, how and for whom we garden matters more than ever. Mm-hmm. Good. You refer to Doug Tallamy in your book. I was recently lucky enough to hear him speak at the California Native Plant Society's conservation conference down in L.A. And, and I have read all of his work. I have interviewed him. He's been on the program. But in this talk, he said a statistic, which I had not, if I had heard it before, I hadn't absorbed it in the way I did sitting in this audience. And it was basically along the lines of, if all of the lawns, either in the country or maybe it was east of the Mississippi, but let's just say east of the Mississippi for conservative measure. If all of that lawn area was reduced by one half, so this is in public spaces, this is in home gardens, this is in strip malls and private business ownership. If they were reduced by one half and replaced with ecologically functional plantings of trees or shrubs or herbaceous perennials, whatever it might be, we would have an urban national park larger than all of our existing national parks in the country right now, larger than the combination of Yellowstone, Yosemite, just name them, and and we would have a larger national park than those. That is a that is for whatever reason this statistic was so powerfully visual to me of the possibility within our home garden settings as any other image has ever been to me and it I just kept you know underlining in your book and I kept checking things yes every now and then I checked things and said no but um <laughs> for the most part it it is that possibility that you are 
begging us to listen to? I drive myself crazy when I'm when I'm motoring around town and and just looking, you know, every half a second. I I point out to myself, why does that have to be that much lawn? You you walk by a, a business, you can even watch by, walk by a Target or something or a school or a church, and it's just all lawn with maybe three feet of foundation bed around the building, and we all know that lawn it's going to take way more upkeep. And if you were planting something in, in meadow or, or, yeah, I mean, it drives drives me nuts, and it's frustrating because we are saying that. I mean, it's, it's another example of human suprem human supremacism. It's saying this this look, this this aesthetic, this application, you know, this is what humans want. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. So, wow. If I thought the conversation with Jason Dewey's about my palm bias challenged me, this week is a whole other level, which we know is good for us. We do. I do. I'm a lifelong student of and voice for gardens of all kinds in all areas and traditions. I'm moved by the vast formal gardens of past eras in Europe and Asia. I know I am expanded by the small and well-worn, well-loved home gardens of members of my very own garden club. I see our gardens and our impulse to garden as creative, constructive, proactive. But then I'm the first to admit I can be something of a Pollyanna. I know this, and I'll laugh with you when you say it, even if you're saying it in irritation. But here's the thing. The uncomfortable crux. I know, too, that our gardens can be part of the problem instead of part of the solution, and I don't want it to be so. I don't want, especially from a place of complacency or convenience or unquestioning adherence to, well, that's the way we've always done it, to add to the sum total of suffering degradation, and a destructive hegemony of dominance, human supremacy, and a colonizing mindset that is a disservice to everyone. I want my garden and your garden, no matter its style or size or cost or purpose, to be much, much better than that. I might be an unrealistic optimist, but I also understand the gravity and the urgency involved. And I believe that even the baby steps of a vast core of dedicated home gardeners adds up to a compound effect of great possibility. And I am willing to keep trying for the hope inherent in that. How about you over there in your garden? Now back to our conversation with Benjamin. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Benjamin Vogt of Monarch Gardens LLC in Lincoln, Nebraska. In his new book, A New Garden Ethic, he argues that our legacy won't be how pretty our gardens looked. Our legacy will be how our gardens and other managed spaces woke us up to a revolution of belonging in this world, a renaissance of ethical thinking that helped us evolve into our fullest potential as stewards of life and gardeners of our own hearts. Welcome back. Describe how you start the book with Leopold's A Land Ethic, and then 
sort of launch us into how you expand on it into the book? We have to we have to begin with, with Aldo Leopold when we're having this kind of conversation. He he is he is the beginning. And I basically just say I, I basically summarize what his land ethic is about the world around us as being a community and how the first rule of intelligent tinkering is to leave all the pieces. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're just slapping down lawn everywhere, you're you're not leaving all the pieces. Mm-hmm. I I skim over a little bit the uh the two environmental philosophies of deep ecology and shallow ecology. And mm-hmm. deep, deep ecology is, is this idea that we need to rely on the wisdom of all these other species and all the other wild places. Mm-hmm. I mean, rivers and mountains and deserts have a wisdom that we haven't even begun to understand. And shallow ecology is basically saying, you know, let, let, let's look to human understanding to fix all these problems because and, – and, and, that, and that's where I, I love solar – panels and I love wind turbines but it's still using it's still using the same strategy that got us in, in, into the into the trouble we're in right now with climate change and mass extinction you're still using the same technologies to say we need this much energy for ourselves we need to do this much for ourselves and everything else be darned and hey but at least we're using solar panels and wind turbines right mm-hmm. you speak about that disassociation quite beautifully the and it's a little bit towards the end of the book the but really reiterating that when we think about it as we should recycle our plastic bottles and you know compost our food scraps and that will help save the rainforest like it's we're we're asking the wrong questions in that whole paradigm and that isn't as useful it's not it's not sharing with our children and other people the a deeper, as you say, understanding and appreciation and accountability. I want to go back to the structure of the book. Summarize one more time for for listeners your understanding of Leopold's A Land Ethic. And then I want to move into your next chapter. Okay, we 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 are part of a we are part of a community, and we need to be having a conversation with the larger the community. And the community is not just humans. The com- the community is is rivers and mountains and and butterflies and bees and prairie dogs and grasses. And it's every living and non living aspect to our to our planetary system. It is rocks and air and water and worms and microbia and. Um, yeah, and we are just the, one piece there. The, this world is incredibly animate, and I, there are there are cultures and even religions, well well beyond what what we have produced as humans. Yeah, and I think that although Aldo Leopold is a beautiful place to start, of course he is deriving that from ancient mm. understanding, and so I think that's important to note in terms of indigenous cultures, other cultures outside of our own. You move on then from this land ethic to your thesis, which you you summarized for us before, the importance of understanding and being intentional about who we are gardening, gardening for and why and how we are doing it that way. And you move into a chapter titled More Than Native Plants. Walk us through the gist of this chapter. Okay, for so long we have been stuck on, on on this debate because 
of native plants versus exotic, right? Because this is how humans think. We think in binaries, black versus white, mm-hmm. good versus bad, yes versus no. And I don't know, that could just be how we evolved. I, I need to read some more on psychology and culture and all that good stuff. Um, but that's how we think. So, so we reduce everything to this, what seems like a very simple debate. Native plants are good, native plants are bad. Um, I can use exotic plants if I want to. Don't tell me, don't tell me that I should be using <laughs> native plants. You know, oh, you're laughing. <laughs> but, well, but it is, it's just, it is the conversation that you hear in so many groups. Like, I don't want to use native plants are ugly. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah, you, you can't tell me what to do. And it's like, I'm not standing to somebody's head saying, plant milkweed. <laughs> but, you know, that's, that's everybody's interpretation because what's happening here, and we're getting ahead of ourselves, but what's happening here is, it, it, it is a lot of psychology. We, we feel these things so personally, and, and it's good we feel these things so personally because that means we're passionate and we care and we want to do something good for the world around us and, and for the people who are going to come after us. So... The debate is not about is not about native plants really. The the, the debate about the, the debate is what are we going to do to save this planet? And and that is a conversation that is even more fraught with perils <laughs> mm-hmm. than talking about native plants versus exotics. So so when I see I it, it this drives me batty too, our conversations are always about how plants are pretty. And and oh, here here's this new plant that's just just been bred. Here's this new coneflower that has new colors or something. And I, I I think why are you being excited about this? Why are you celebrating this new plant that we've probably hybridized, and that we have no idea what the benefit is going to be to wildlife, whether that's adult pollinators or their larvae or or other wildlife that are feeding on the plant or or the soil life or the plant community because plants are are linked together in so many ways above and below ground. We don't know, but we keep celebrating all this newness, which is really eradicating the wildness around us, even if it's quote unquote a native plant. Mm-hmm. And you give a, I think one of the things that I found um, interesting and refreshing about this chapter is that it does ask us to um, kind of move to a different meta level of this conversation instead of it being native plants versus non-native plants, but is in looking at how we are framing that conversation and populating that conversation with the continuation of this human supremacy. For instance, you give this example of, um, I think it's in this chapter, you talk about our tendency to get something wrong and then try and fix it in sort of a wrong-headed way. Um, and you give the example of the butterfly bush, the the budlia, and how it is, you know, a noxious, invasive thug of a plant that isn't, in fact, that beneficial to butterflies and bees uh, across our country. And the way we solve that is our horticulturists who want to sell us more plants. And in many cases, I love them, and I love plants, and I love buying plants. But they then say, oh, well, we've made a sterile one, so you don't have to worry about it. Same as they have done with broom, which is a, an incredibly invasive pest throughout the Western United States. But they, you know, so then we get these sterile uh, varieties, and that doesn't, that, that actually just perpetuates the problem, not 
it, it doesn't change the conversation about what is wrong there. No, it, it certainly does not change the conversation. And it doesn't help that butterfly bush is called butterfly bush. <laughs> so we think <laughs> we're, we're doing good by planting it. Um, I don't know. I, 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 ha I have this real, I, mean, I want people to buy plants. I, I want people to be engaged with the garden. I guess I really want people to grow their own plants. But this idea that we're taking organisms that basically have their own culture, their own, and I know this sounds crazy, they have their own culture, they have their own society, they have their own social interactions. We're taking them and we're putting a dollar amount on them. I mean, so that just goes to larger conversation of capitalism and how that also erodes life. Mm -hmm. And the garden as a tool for consumption is is a whole nother conversation that uh, yeah. I, I, I struggle with e even as I love to, you know, populate my garden. So, okay, so then we're going to move on to why we believe what we believe. And this is where you dig in much more deeply to the psychology of different worldviews and how we see them in things like lawn across our country. Yeah, we're, it's, it's my favorite chapter of the book. And it's, and you know, there's five chapters, and it's chapter three. It's the it's the middle. It's the heart for a reason. Um, it's this idea that we're working through when we're having these conversations about native plants versus exotics, or gardens, or about how large our national parks should be. It's these conversations about overcoming environmental grief, even if we don't realize it. We are working through a process of grieving for the things that we have lost. And the reason we've lost them to a large degree is because we've made them lost. We have actively eradicated them, whether through misunderstanding or just sheer greed, which we, we, we know what we're doing when we're being greedy. Five stages of grief are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So we are working through those five stages of grief. So that's psychology 101, really. And so everything, everything every environmental conversation we have comes from that. Us, us trying to work through this incredible depression and, and darkness, um, which is the other side of the coin of our incredible joy and, and biophilia that, that we have, this innate mm -hmm. love and passion for the world around us. Mm -hmm. And then we move into urban wildness and social justice. What is the heart of this chapter? I think we talked on that, uh, we, we, we touched on that a little bit before, this, this idea, um, you know, people people who are disenfranchised, humans who are disenfranchised in their culture, people who live in these marginalized areas in our towns don't have easy access to nature. However we define nature, I mean, even even rich folks don't necessarily have good solid access to nature because they just have lawns and, and barberry. Um, so when we have diverse landscapes around schools and community centers, and I'm not talking lawn, trees, shrubs, and a flower bed. I'm talking, you know, this 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 idea Ptolemy had a 50% lawn conversion to sustainable, ecologically functioning landscapes. When we have these diverse landscapes, um, kids kids in schools are are going to have higher test scores. They're going to be able to work better in in groups. Um, they're going to be less depressed. Uh, hospital patients with a view of complex nature outside a window will will um, heal and get better faster if they're able to get better. 
So, and of course, trees and shrubs and flowers and grasses and all these different, all this different plant material, they're cooling our urban areas, they're cleaning the air, they're taking out toxins from the air, they're taking out toxins from, from uh, runoff, all the oil and junk that's on our roads. So, I mean, plants, plants are important to justice among our own species, but of course, they're also important for justice among other species because plants are hosts for so many other living organisms. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. So have you read A Sand County Almanac? If you haven't, I'm giving you the thumbs up that you should. It's a keeper. Sometime around when I was maybe 12, maybe 13, my mother gave me the complete works of Emily Dickinson, and my father gave me A Sand County Almanac. These two together, Aldo and Emily, might sum up my own scope of garden ethic. In the very opening pages of A Sand County Almanac, Leopold writes, We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. That land is community is the basic concept of ecology, but that land is to be loved and respected is an extension of ethics. Our bigger and better society is now like a hypochondriac, so obsessed with its own economic health that it has lost the capacity to remain healthy. The whole world is so greedy for more bathtubs that it has lost the stability necessary to build them or even to turn off the tap. Nothing could be more salutary at this stage than a little healthy contempt for a plethora of material blessings. He wrote that in 1948. You all know how much I love my garden and your gardens. I like sharing new books, new plants, new garden pots. I like supporting authors, artists, thinkers, growers, nursery people, doers, and dreamers with these conversations and with my garden. But I also know, I know that I, for one, need to sit very still again, with these thoughts from Aldo Leopold, with these thoughts from Benjamin Vogt, and with the wisdom from peoples and places living fully in the awareness of our interdependence, I need to keep interrogating myself as to how my plot can really be a part of a way forward. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this too. If you're moved to share, send me a note on the contact form at cultivatingplace.com and sign up for the monthly A View From Here newsletter or leave a comment on today's program post on Instagram or Facebook. This is the kind of transformative conversation that grows us all. Now, back to our conversation with Benjamin Vogt and his new garden ethic. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to speak more with Benjamin Vogt. In our gardens at this time, he sees both the worst kind of hypocrisy perpetuating the decline and degradation of other cultures, species, and the environment, as well as the best kind of bridge for overcoming and transcending such destructive short-term thinking and action. Welcome back. Describe what this chapter is and, and walk through some of the examples in it. And why was this an important chapter for you to anchor the book with? 
I wanted us to really understand. I, I can sit here and say till I'm blue in my face that other other creatures, other life forms have have a culture. And how, how, however we define that, um, I, I I define that in hopefully the easiest way I possibly could by by discussing communication. Plants communicate with one another all the time through through sense and sounds and 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 touching and. Uh, all, all this different stuff. They're also communicating with pollinators. Um, they they will they will let bees and other pollinators know what their nectar and, and pollen availability is by changing the U, UV signals that they're giving off that we can't see, but that insects can see. So there's this there's this incredible world of, of communication going on that we don't even notice, and so therefore, if we don't notice it, we just dismiss the possibility. I wanted I wanted to take us down a little bit more into the micro of the world that's around us, so that we could perhaps start to develop an empathy and then a compassion and start to fight for the world around us, because we share we really do share the same kind of language that all the other life forms do on the planet. And this chapter was my favorite chapter. Um, it spoke so beautifully to what we know and what we feel moves us about this connection to the world through our time in native landscapes, natural landscapes, to our time in the garden. Or for me, it's that best way of being in these spaces. Um, and this idea that there are so many different levels of language and if we just pay attention, we can hear them and understand them was, I think, probably where the poet in you got to me. And this brings me to a follow-up question, which is, I, I am the choir. I, I am a gardener who believes deeply and passionately about the importance and possibility of our gardens if they are thoughtful and intentional and done with any level of knowledge spent, time spent gaining more knowledge. This gave me quite a few um, facts and approaches to speaking perhaps more eloquently and more, not always scientifically, because but there's very good science, to other people who may not yet be in this spot. And that I found really helpful. I think I think it's critical that we speak to people both with fact and and with feeling. Mm. I mean that's we we have two sides of our brain. Some of us use one side more than the other, but if, if we can use both both fact and feeling together, then we have we, we can create a really persuasive argument. And we only I'm fine preaching to the choir. It only in all of our in all of our best social justice movements, um, and we're just talking just for humans um, throughout time. It's it's been the minority that's that's risen up and caused change for the ninety percent of the other people. So I am I am perfectly happy speaking to the choir and supercharging the choir. Mm. What what are some of your greatest hopes with your own garden? and in your region and and are you gardening there you you have a wife and family 
four cats. Does that count? That counts. That absolutely counts. (laughs) Our family, my family's in Minnesota and hers is in Ohio. So they are not close at all. Mm -hmm. Um, I, you, you, you use the word hope and I speak against hope in the book because, (laughs) because hope is passive. Hope is, you know, you're not, Mm. you're not doing anything, but, but that's a tricky conversation. Are you sure? I don't know. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Um, hope. What, what, so I, I, I want to, I want to be totally, totally honest here and say, I do not have any hope for ourselves, for our species or for this planet. Now I know that sounds, well, then why the heck do you write this book? Why the heck do you talk about this? Why do you make other people talk about it? Because if the ship is going down, I mean, you, you might as well scream. Don't just reshuffle the de- deck chairs, you know, light them on fire. I don't know. Make some new ones because that's, that's, that's what you do. That's what you're good at. That's what you like to do. I I, I don't know. So, yeah, I I mean, yeah, I have a 10,000-square-foot lot with 5,000 feet of gardens on them, and maybe that's hope. But every year I notice fewer and fewer pollinators coming, even though I'm adding more and more native plants. Um, the, this year, everybody's been talking about how cold it is, but it's actually just a normal winter. The last several years, it's been really warm, and spring starts to come about February 1st when it should be coming March 15th. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything is out of whack, and it's get, going to be more out of whack. And no, no hope. I'm sorry, everybody. Okay. What <laughs> are so? Given that, what would you like to see other people doing with their gardens as a result of this book? Removing as much lawn as they possibly can. Starting, starting to give over the landscape to others, other plants, other species, and understand, well, and, and just and just come to understand them a little bit more. I mean, of course you can do that by planting one aster out front, milkweed out back or whatever, and, and just observing the community that's coming to that plant. You can hold a bumblebee on a cold morning and realize that it's not going to sting you. It just needs to get warmed up, and it really has no interest in harming you. It just wants to go pollinate and do its thing and live its life. Um yeah, the, I, I know we always talk about taking baby steps in environmental awareness and making a difference, and I suppose even in having hope. But baby steps will, will not be a will not be enough when we're facing two degree rise um, in global temperatures in what the next couple decades, and and fifty percent of plants being extinct by the end of the century. So, yeah, happy. Do not invite me to parties. I just spew this stuff out. So now I want to I want to read for all for all the listeners out there who might be shaking their head at our friend Benjamin Vote. I want to read you a couple of things from his book, and this is from the chapter um, "Speaking the Language Again." Gardens can save the world by saving us. They can bring us back into contact with diversity. They can do what landscape architects like Olmsted envisioned, bring different cultures together in an open, democratic space to share their lives and learn from one another so that they might grow stronger together. We all have the equal right to exist. We all depend upon one another. We are all an imperfect perfection. Every stem, 
every bloom, every burrow, every cloud, every call, every kiss, every touch. Rise up and love all that we negate through our closed-off culture. It is time for a garden revolution. It is time for daily wildness to be our calling. It is time for defiant compassion. So with all of that hopelessness, Benjamin Vogt, thank you very much for being a guest today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm glad you read that passage because those two passages, because it's far more eloquent than I am verbally. So thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I, the vigor, I admire the vigor you bring to these conversations. It is important and it is energizing, Benjamin. I'm glad we could do this. Monarch Gardens LLC is a prairie garden design firm, and it is the home of Benjamin Vogt. His 4,500-square-foot habitat and native plant garden has been on tours and featured in many national and statewide publications. Benjamin has a Ph.D. in creative writing from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. His writing and photography has appeared in publications from literary journals to magazines to anthologies. He writes a native plant gardening column at house.com, and he speaks nationally on sustainable design and wildlife landscapes. Benjamin's new book, A New Garden Ethic, Cultivating Defiant Compassion for an Uncertain Future, about which we spoke today, is now out from New Society Publishers. I'll end with one more excerpt from his book. Toward the last few pages, Benjamin pleads with us, study and learn. Be open to perspectives and research that challenge and make you feel uncomfortable. Celebrate conflicting information and follow the scientific and emotional facts down to the core. Test your assumptions. Test the assumptions of others. Know that every plant and every place matters. A powerful, compassionate realization. Be willing to love with a broken heart, to foster that breaking and touch the world that so many hold at a distance to protect their identity. Be totally vulnerable in your mind, your soul, and your garden. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust and you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.